book of Acts chapter 16. And we'll start at verse 11 and go all the way to verse 34. So a little bit long, but uh, basically the testimony of uh, how three people um, were converted. (coughs) This is the word of the Lord. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to uh, Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this word, and we thank you, God, that you show us uh, the power of the Holy Spirit, and we also thank you that that's it, that same spirit is at work uh, today, and uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, draw near to you, to draw near to Christ uh, in a similar fashion that we see, uh, you know, these people in the book of Acts drawing near to Christ, that our hearts would be opened as well, and that we would also have a deeper sense of the power and the work of your Holy Spirit Uh, as it works uh, in this world, as it works through your people, as it works through churches, as it works through um, unexpected situations and circumstances. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, so uh, if you're joining us for the first time or recently, we are going through the book of Acts. We started this series back in September, and one of the reasons why we're going through the series is we want to reflect on the power, the person, the power, the work of the Holy Spirit, but also uh, the Holy Spirit in relation to the mission of the church. And last week, I, I wanted to give you some context for the passage that we're going to look at today. Uh, if you remember in last week's passage, the Holy Spirit is the one who forbade Paul and his companions from going east because that was their initial plan. And as a result, instead of going eastward, they go west towards Macedonia, which is like a modern-day Greece. And Paul receives a vision from man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And what we said was God is the one who ultimately sends the right person uh, Namely, not just Paul, but if you remember Timothy, who was from a mixed marriage, his mother was a Jew, his father was a Greek. Uh, God sends Timothy to Paul, and he accompanies him on his second missionary journey. But then we also said God is ultimately the one who closes doors and opens doors, and he is the one who leads in mission. And the reason why I thought it was very important to look at that passage is, I think, because without it, you might get the sense that these three conversions that happen here happen uh, you know, because of, um, I guess maybe because of Paul or what he says, um, without recognizing that ultimately God is the one who is behind these three encounters or these three conversions. Uh, we might uh, conclude well, Paul must be just an exceptionally gifted person. And rather than God sending the right people at the right time to walk through the doors that God opened, we might lift up Paul and say, oh, you know, how amazing is Paul? Um, there's an author maybe in the last couple of years, whose ideas that personally I, I have found to be compelling. And uh, you know, I've, I've quoted him before, but uh, a lot of his work has to do with writing about the church in a secular age. And along with that, he's also reflected on what he says is the crisis of decline for the church in the western part of the world. And he just came out with like a, a new book. His, his books tend to be a little bit... Um, I don't know, on the scholarly or academic side, but he just came out with a book that's uh, supposed to be kind of a summary of um, the things that he's been researching and maybe more for like the, um, the average reader instead of the uh, academic reader. But uh, he says the church in North America is truly facing a crisis, and a lot of people recognize that, but then he also says that the problem is misdiagnosed. Because these days what people think is, oh, the church in the West or the church in North America is in crisis because it has too little influence in the culture in our world or there's uh, too few people or attendance is on the decline or people have too fragile of a belief. And this is what people interpret to be the crisis of uh, decline in the West. And therefore, the solutions that are offered usually revolve around some kind of, uh, oh, well, th therefore, the church needs to be in more innovative uh, the church needs to be more persuasive so that it can gain influence. The church needs to be more relevant so that it can attract more people. And he says, like, this drive towards innovation, it actually worsens the real problem that the church in the West has. He, uh, he has this illustration. Now, I don't have a medical background, so I'm going to just trust him that this is <laughs> accurate. But he says, you know, imagine that there is a patient whose kidney functions are shutting down. And since the kidneys are shutting down, what do you do? You call the kidney specialist. And this kidney specialist runs tests and then prescribes treatment for these kidneys that have shut down. And the patient might recover for a bit, but then uh, the root of the problem might actually be misunderstood. Because what if the patient actually has this rare autoimmune 
blood condition that affects kidney functioning. In that case, you don't need a kidney specialist, but what you need is a blood specialist. The kidneys shutting down are simply the symptom, but what the blood specialist reveals is that the root of the problem is actually in the blood and not in the kidneys. And so he says, when we say the church has a problem with like declining attendance or declining membership, he thinks we actually miss the root of the problem and therefore we prescribe the wrong kind of treatment. The need for innovation has largely been the treatment that has been prescribed for many decades to a declining church. But what this author argues and says is the real problem is this. Uh, the secular age has infected the church. Uh, we think we can innovate our way towards revival or innovate our way towards renewal, but perhaps what we really need is we have to adopt a posture of waiting in prayer and in worship and wait for God to move. But if in a secular age, an age where the imminence right, has precedence over the transcendence, it, when that is the default framework, then waiting for a transcendent God to, to move in our lives or to move in the church or to move in the city will feel like a waste of time to a lot of people. We're going to look at these three stories of conversion, and I think in each of these stories, it is pretty clear that God is the one who moves. It is pretty clear that God is the one who ultimately does the work of conversion. Paul and Silas, they're in the right place, in the right time, and they're the right people because God is the one who sends them. God is the one who opened doors for them, they were faithful in doing what God called them to do. And as a result, these three people come to Christ. But at the end of the day, God is the one who prepared these works to be done beforehand. Uh, one of the practices of the church is to give testimonies. And uh, for example, you know, if somebody wants to get baptized, they might give a testimony. Um, if someone wants to become a member, like usually um, I or an elder that interviews them will say, like, uh, tell me about your testimony. How did you end up becoming uh, a believer in Jesus? And I love, I love hearing testimonies. I love hearing the different stories and the different ways that God has intervened in people's lives and revealed his grace and, and brought people closer to him and to him. And as we look at these three conversions, um, I thought it would be effective to hear these stories as though they were like three people that were here and they're giving their testimony, Okay. First woman, her name is Lydia. Luke gives a few details about this woman in verse 14. So we know she is from the city of Thyatira. Uh, we know she sells purple goods. Uh, for, for whatever reason, I don't know the details behind this, but purple was uh, a color that was difficult to obtain and therefore tended to be more expensive. So uh, maybe luxury items, okay? I don't know. Uh, and we also know that she's a worshiper of God. And based on these small details, we can infer a lot about this woman named Lydia. If she is from Thyatira, what is she doing in Philippi? Well, she's probably there to conduct some business. There's also a couple clues that she's probably a successful businesswoman because after her conversion, she invites Paul and her, his fellow missionaries into her home. And uh, maybe we can assume this means she has a big enough house where she can host several people. Maybe this is like even her second home. Who knows? The other thing we learn about this woman is she is a worshiper of God. This phrase is usually used to describe, you know, a non-Jewish person, a Gentile person who came into contact with the Jewish community and they want to learn the Jewish religious practices without actually becoming a Jew. So I guess we could say she's like a, a spiritual seeker in, in some way. So she's probably affluent. She's probably successful. And she's seeking something, spiritually speaking. 
So what would she say if she were here today, giving her testimony? I imagine it would go something like this. She would say, you know, I thought I had it all. I made a lot of money through my business. I experienced a lot of uh, success in my career, but I was searching for something more. I encountered some Jewish people, and I saw them praying and worshiping. I thought that was intriguing. So I tried to learn how they pray. I tried to learn how they worship a God who, you know, personally feels so far away. But then one day, as I was at a place of prayer with some of the other women, I heard a preacher named Paul, and the Lord opened my heart to pay attention to what this guy Paul said. He told me about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He told me that the Lord does not dwell in man-made temples, nor is he served by human hands. And to my joy, he also said, God is actually not far away from us, but God is near to us. We live and move and have our being in Christ. And then he called us to repent and be baptized. And I was so persuaded and so touched by what Paul had said. And I wanted to know this God so deeply. And I was so compelled by uh, this message of the gospel that I decided to repent and to be baptized. And uh, not just me, but my entire household, my entire family, we decided to get baptized. So much joy filled my heart that I wanted to serve, and so I invited Paul and these other missionaries into my home. What a powerful testimony. We move on, and we meet the second person. The second person that Paul encounters doesn't even have a name in this passage. We know even less about this girl than we did of Lydia. According to verse 16, she was a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, and she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So this is a, a girl that's very different from somebody like Lydia. She is a slave with an evil spirit within her. She's being used and she's being exploited for profit by her owners because she was able to tell these fortunes. And she begins to follow Paul around and she cries out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And then I guess if you just kind of see that phrase, it's like, hey, what's, what's wrong with that? She's not saying anything bad, but the context tells us it must have been pretty annoying because it says Paul was greatly annoyed, right? And uh, that's reassuring to hear, especially if people annoy you, that uh, even out of your annoyance, you can still minister to them. So out of Paul's great annoyance, he ministers to this girl. And what Paul says is this, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And in a dramatic fashion, this uh, whatever is inside of her, this evil spirit comes out of her. Imagine this girl is now here sharing her testimony and I imagine it would go like this. I was a girl without hope. I felt trapped. I was enslaved by an evil spirit. I was being controlled uh, by these people who exploited me and used me for their own gain and their own profit. And I don't know why I did this, but I must not have been in my right mind, but I just started following these men as they were going from place, uh, the place of prayer. And I would just harass them for days. And then one day, one of them got really annoyed at me and said something and commanded something to come out of me. And uh, as soon as that happened, I suddenly felt free and I felt liberated and I felt alive again. And my life all of a sudden was filled with hope as I experienced this power and this authority that comes from Jesus Christ. And account of being liberated from this evil spirit, I was also free from these people who could no longer exploit me because I couldn't tell fortunes anymore. They couldn't make money off of me anymore. I was free. Now, what an equally powerful testimony of the power 
of the Holy Spirit, of the power of Jesus' name, one that is also quite different from the testimony of Lydia. As a result of their exorcism, an evil spirit uh, from the slave girl, uh, of casting out the evil spirit from the slave girl, now Paul and si- their owners get men. Paul and Silas are beaten, and they are wrongfully now thrown into a prison where they would pray and they would sing hymns to God from jail. And now this leads to this third story about this Philippian jailer. And what would he say? He might say something like this. I was a retired soldier, and I was working the graveyard shift at this local prison. I just do my job, and I mind my own business. One day, we got these two Jewish inmates that, for some reason, people really despised. And they were attacked by a crowd. They were stripped of their clothes, and they were beaten down. And by the time they got to the jail... They didn't look too good after their beating, but for some strange and curious reason, uh, they didn't seem too down. I would hear them at night. They would be praying and singing all night. And all of a sudden, something happened. There was this huge uh, earthquake that happened, and everything started to shake. And I don't know what happened, but when I came to, I saw all the prison doors were wide open. A flood of thoughts came to my mind. The prisoners escaped. What are my bosses going to do when they find out about this what are the crowds going to do to me when they find out about this you let this these prisoners escape i felt so ashamed i felt so humiliated and worse i wondered they might do something really bad to me maybe it would be better if i died than to live with this failure and as i was about to draw my sword and end my life suddenly i heard this loud voice stop me from ending my life it was paul one of the prisoners who reassured me hey Everybody's still here. All the prisoners are still here. I called for the lights and I was shocked. What kind of person who is as badly beaten as he was would restrain from escaping and would care for my little life? You know, they were so different from anybody else that I've ever met. And I was just trembling and I fell down before them. And I heard that they were preaching this message of salvation in a place of prayer. But at that moment... The only thing I wanted to really know was, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said this. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so from that day forward, I came to believe in the Lord Jesus, and I felt great joy in my heart because I had come to know the Lord. And as I came to know the Lord Jesus, I wanted to serve these brothers. And so I washed their wounds, and I invited them to my home, where my household also came and uh, believed in God. It was a string of unexpected events. Paul and Silas were thrown into prison, even though they shouldn't have been thrown into prison because they were Roman citizens. Earthquake comes out of nowhere. All the prisoners should have escaped. But rather than escape, Paul and Silas shared this word of the Lord with me. And I am so amazed how God orchestrated all these things so that I would come to know him. You look at all these stories, there isn't really a common thread as far as the, the actual people go. These are three very different people in three different life situations and circumstances. Lydia, a well-to-do businesswoman, hears the gospel in a small group setting. Here's a presentation of the gospel. She's attracted to it, persuaded by it. It sounds like a testimony you might hear of a successful business person in, uh, in Manhattan. You have the slave girl possessed by an evil spirit. She experiences the authority of Jesus as the spirit is cast out. This might be a testimony of someone uh, living on the streets of New York that you might hear. 
third person, Gentile jailer, probably a retired soldier, uh, is so touched by Paul and Silas, cared about him so much that they didn't escape prison even when they had the opportunity to do so. Maybe this would be a testimony you would hear from some kind of uh, blue-collared retired police officer. Uh, I don't know, living in Staten Island? I don't know where they would live. Uh, What's the common thread? Uh, All these different people in these different life situations, the common thread is the Holy Spirit. God brings new life through these various means, not even in the same way, right? Through various means to these different people on account of the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul and his missionary colleagues are in Macedonia not because they were brilliant strategists. Actually, the opposite, because their strategy was to go east. They are there because the Spirit led them there. Uh, some of you might be aware, um, and maybe not everybody's aware, so um, if this is news to you, um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think, big news, especially for uh, New York believers. But uh, Tim Keller, he, he died this week. And uh, he had this bout of pancreatic cancer. Tim Keller was a pastor of uh, Redeemer. And, <clears throat> um, you know, he had such a big influence on, like, so many people, uh, so many pastors. I'm sure, like, a lot of the churches that are planted here, uh, a lot of it probably has to do with, like, his ministry and his preaching. And I think one of the things that I've always appreciated about him was he had this very keen awareness that, a lot of the growth uh, and influence of Redeemer was not on account of him. Uh, I've heard him say this many times, but he would say that, you know, they basically just got caught up in a movement where God was working powerfully in New York City, and, uh, you know, he was just there at the right time, right? He was like the right person at the right time uh, that God called him there. And he would always say, like, you know, he thinks the reason for Redeemer's, you know, remarkable fruitfulness, especially in those early years, was tons and tons of people all over the country were praying for New York and were praying for Redeemer. Uh, Specifically, Presbyterian women prayed up a storm. Uh, There's a book uh, that came out on Keller recently, and it's, like, interesting hearing, like, the early days and the background story and the stories of, like, how he ended up coming to New York. And uh, in the book, his wife uh, says this. It's like, we couldn't make a bad decision in those early years, and I'm convinced There was never a church plan, even going back to the Apostle Paul in the first century church, that had so many people, especially women, praying for it. Now, the reason why so many women were praying is that it seemed like every one of these women knew a young adult or knew a person or knew a family member in New York City who really needed Jesus, and they didn't know of any churches that could uh, share the gospel with them or reach them. And so their hearts longed for a church in New York City that could reach them. And so they prayed up a storm. And the Kellers were deeply aware of how much prayer undergirded that work. Now, before they ended up deciding to come to New York, uh, God actually closed many doors. Tim Keller himself had very little interest in uprooting his family and moving to what was back then known as like a spiritual wasteland in Manhattan. Uh, churches in the 70s and 80s, uh, they, were, they were closing, and they could barely keep their lights on. Uh, people said a new church couldn't last more than 15 years in a place like Manhattan, and you can only make it 15 years if you have like strong financial backing from the denomination. 
Uh, many people uh, tried to plant churches in Manhattan, and uh, many people failed. Keller was tasked, um, you know, he was a seminary professor at actually the school Fred and I attended at Westminster at the time, and um, he was uh, the northernmost person in the denomination uh, living in Philadelphia. So they asked him, hey, can you go to New York and just kind of like do some like research? So every uh, other week he would drive like three hours up to New York and like meet people and talk to people. And he was tasked with finding somebody to plant a church in New York City. So he's like, oh, this person must, uh, will probably be good. So he asked this person. They said no. He asked another person. <laughs> this person said no. He asked another person. This person said okay, right, and came uh, so close to actually starting the church plant, even put an offer down for an apartment in New York. But then after praying and fasting, right, there's no cell phones back then, so he went on a trip. He came back. He heard his answering machine. There was a message from the person he thought was going to plant this church in Manhattan, and the message said, after much prayer and fasting, <clears throat> I don't sense release from God to do ministry in New York. So he ended up declining. That door was closed. After all those doors closed, um, Keller began to have a sense of, you know, maybe, maybe this is something God is calling me to. And so, uh, of course, many obstacles. Uh, I, I think his wife didn't, wasn't really enthusiastic about moving into Manhattan. Uh, <coughs> I mean, uh, some of you know Keller now is like this great preacher, but back then his only experience was like a small uh, church in Virginia uh, of like, you know, not like, um, I don't know, educated cultural elites in Manhattan, but, you know, very like average working folk, blue collar, many of them like uneducated, have like uh, high school degrees, but not necessarily college degrees. Like that was his ministry context. And so uh, on paper, it didn't seem like he was like the right person to come to New York. But he prayed about it, and he felt deeply a sense of call to come to Manhattan. And what God did was God closed certain doors and opened certain doors, and he ended up walking through it and planted Redeemer. I think it's very similar to actually what happened in Macedonia. And the unseen work of probably the countless people who prayed for God to move in New York, maybe for decades, right? Maybe since the 70s, maybe since the 80s. We, we don't know. Uh, that, that unseen work, how many prayers were lifted up for New York City? How many people prayed for New York in that time? How many years and decades were people praying for God to move in New York City? We don't see that, but the reality is that was probably the, the heavy lifting that was required for this great movement of God to happen. You see, it's only when God moves that these kinds of remarkable conversions happen. And this chapter ought to remind us that it's not about the Apostle Paul. It's not about Silas. It's not about somebody like uh, Tim Keller or whoever God sends in that particular moment in time. But it's about God moving through the work of the Spirit. He is the engine that changes people's hearts. If there is any kind of impulse within us that says, you know, maybe in our most honest moments, yeah, I know prayer is important, but I don't know. Sometimes it feels like uh, kind of a waste of time. It seems like there's more effective things I should be doing. It might be a sign that the secular age has infected us. And, uh, you know, we live in the, this imminent 
context and we forget about the importance of the transcendent and how the transcendent has to invade <laughs> into our imminent spaces. Uh, if we think our inability to innovate or uh, be persuasive is ultimately the problem uh, for the crisis of uh, decline of what some people would label as happening, it might be a sign that the secular age has infected us. Rather, what we should probably realize is, you know, at the end of the day, God is the one who is going to move. God is the one who is going to close certain doors so that he might open other doors. God is the one who is going to send the right people in the right time. God is the one who is going to exercise power over these demonic forces in the spiritual realm. And if that is the case, doesn't it make sense that the people of God should wait for God to do that in prayer and intercede that God would do that and move powerfully in our context, in our lives, in the people that we encounter, in the spaces that we inhabit. If we realize that our only hope is for God to move powerfully, then I think that means we have the right spiritual orientation. You know, I was recently talking to somebody who is uh, planting a church out in Long Island. <coughs> and uh, we were just kind of talking about ministry. And... Um, I don't know, I guess he kind of wanted like my, uh, not advice, but just to share like some, some of my experience. And I said, you know, I used to think like teaching and preaching was uh, about giving information. And as long as you give people like the information, um, that's when, you know, that's when things happen, right? <laughs> How naive. Uh, today, I think it's actually a lot of it is about uh, shaping our imaginations. It's about getting people and us to see beyond the sin and darkness that we see in this world, beyond the news, beyond the despair, uh, or on the flip side, beyond uh, the riches and beyond the successes of this world, to see something better, to see a future given to us, secured to us by a crucified Christ, to see a life with Jesus as being far greater than anything else this world has to offer. And he said, how do you do that? How do you shape people's imagination to see that? And my response, to be honest, I think the Holy Spirit does all the heavy lifting in that department. <laughs> right? I, I don't know how to do it. I just try to preach faithfully. But I think at the end of the day, God is also the one that shapes our imagination to see hope, to see joy, to see love, to see beyond suffering, to see beyond success, to see that life with him is far greater than anything. I was talking to someone at work, and we were just talking about how younger generations, there seems to be like a problem of hope in that they lack hope, in that um, the future looks very bleak for them. Um, they, they're a little bit like disillusioned about uh, the future. How do you get someone to see a future that's not bleak but one that is full of life because of Jesus? How do you get someone to uh, have their imagination shaped to see that which is unseen? Uh, in the imminent frame, you say, well, I don't know, there's some economic indicators that say like, the job prospects uh, will be much better and you'll be fine, right? Mm, who knows? Mm, ultimately, I think you have to say, hey, no matter what you face in the future, uh, Life will be great, not because of your circumstances, 
but because Jesus has risen. And therefore, everything will be good. (laughs) How do we get someone to see that? God has to do it. And if God does it, we have to be a people who persevere in prayer. We have to pray for that. Maybe for decades. Because the fact of the matter is, God will indeed move one day. When? We don't know. But he will. How do we know? Well, one, he sent the Holy Spirit. That's what the book of Acts is all about. We live in this new age. We live in the age of the Spirit. We can also see he's done it in the past. Even in this very city, he's done it. And he will do it again and again and again until Jesus returns. And how do we know that? And let me end with this. Because we have another testimony. God's testimony. Comes from 1 John 5, 9 to 12. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Lydia has a testimony because God testified to her concerning his Son. The slave girl has a testimony because God testified to her concerning his son. Philippian jailer has a testimony because God testified to him concerning his son. If you know Jesus, you have a testimony because God testified to you concerning his son. And many, many, many more will have a testimony because God will testify to them concerning his son. And I think that should be a big part of our heart's desire as a church, something that we long to see, so much so that it's always a part of what we pray for. We ought to express that longing by interceding and asking God, God, will you move? God, will you take all this darkness and despair and negativity and polarization and hate and everything else that seems so bad, and would you enter into it and bring light through your gospel? Let's pray. Uh, God, we pray that you would uh, do just that. That whatever, uh, <clears throat> whatever space we inhabit, whatever relationship you have given to us, uh, whatever uh, people you bring to us, whatever doors you open, God, we pray that your presence would be there and that you would move in powerful ways. We pray, God, that you would move in people's hearts and, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, post uh, everything we've been through with uh, COVID and pandemic and uh, everything that came along with that. Uh, We pray... that you would move powerfully. You would send the right people with the right gifts, 
in the right time to be bold, to be courageous, to be faithful, be full of uh, passion and purity and character, to be full of strength, to look at uh, a bad situation like being thrown into prison and being beaten as an opportunity to pray and to sing hymns and songs of praise. to share this message of hope that has hopefully infected our hearts so much so that when we look at our lives and we say it is so much better with Jesus you have given us this gospel messages ministry of reconciliation in jars of clay we are but fragile jars of clay easily broken easily damaged and yet we have this great treasure I pray that you would empower uh, all churches uh, across New York City um, to share this great treasure with conviction, with hope, with love, with gentleness. God, will you move? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.